What I mean by theory is like an imaginary relationship to a real problem. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhist studies in higher education. My name is Sarah Richardson, and I teach at the University of Toronto. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Luther Abrock, a professor of South Asian religions in the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. This episode is called Constructing Buddhist Theories of the Body from Ancient Texts, a Seminar. This was about a topical seminar Luther was in the midst of teaching for the second time, where he was focusing his students, mostly undergrads, on early Buddhist texts in translation and helping them mine terms and sections related to bodies and gender, and using this to help students understand an ancient Indian and Buddhist concept of the body. Now, we recorded this interview back in the December of 2019, before this present pandemic has really changed a lot of how we teach and why we teach. So even though so much has changed and we're kind of super saturated, I think many of us in thinking about teaching modalities and what we should translate into the new formats we're going to take up, it's also so refreshing to go back to thinking about course content and research skills, which really never get old. So enjoy. Hi, Luther. Welcome to The Circled Square. Well, thank you for having me here. I'm so thrilled that you're able to speak with us today. Could you start by introducing yourself, starting with my name is? Okay, sure. My name is Luther Obrock, and I'm a professor here at the University of Toronto. I teach in the Department for the Study of Religion and also in Historical Studies. Um, My main area of specialization is Sanskrit, Sanskrit literature. Um, But I also have a deep and abiding interest in Buddhism. Um, especially the social history of Buddhism. So I, I tend to approach things in ancient South Asia from both the language perspective. I was trained philologically, but then also I'm interested in what we might call you know, uh, questions of social history. And what do you mean by social history? What does that mean for you? Well, what that means for me is trying to recover practices, ideas, contexts that underlie the text. So when we deal with ancient South Asia, we have just many many texts. And to try to think through what was the world in which these texts were meaningful to me is absolutely essential to um, the questions that I want to ask about the about the ancient South Asian past. So, um, you know, when you read something like the Pali Canon or Sanskrit Kavya literature or whatever, these things I want to see, like, what world produced these and what did these texts say within that world? And so for our listeners who may not be familiar, when you say Sanskrit kavya literature, oh, sorry, yeah. what does that mean? What is kavya? So, it's a so, form of meter, right? Well, or well sort of? <laughs> kavya. Uh, kavya is a Sanskrit word that means what a kavi or a poet does is kavya. So uh, it is, we might define it as Sanskrit ornate literature. And this is one of my first loves. Um, as a Sanskrit student, I was always charmed and baffled by it. So I kept reading more and more. So this was largely the area of my specialization when I was um, studying Sanskrit. So, and again, Sanskrit Kavya literature, we might think of this as something that has nothing to do with the religious world or the Buddhist world. But then again, there are amazing Buddhist Kavyas and Kavyas that deal with religious themes. So Mm. it's it's a very important body or genre of text for people to look at and study and enjoy. Mm -hmm. Another kind of follow-up question on your specific interests. When you talk about early South Asian history, what does that mean? What's what's early? Where's where, oh. does, where, the, where are the lines of early for you? Well, that's a that's another really good question, and 
I have to say that my own, you know, my own research specialization now is something that we would not consider early in South Asia. So I'm very much interested in second millennium um, Sanskrit literature. So things after 1000 CE. However, um, what I, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about early text, which I think we'll talk about a little mm-hmm. bit more today, mm-hmm. are things created in the few centuries before and after the turn of the common era. So, you know. First from, century. Well, yeah. So we'll basically say from the time of the Buddha um, mm-hmm. in the middle of the uh, first millennium uh, BCE to, we'll say, 500 CE, something okay, like that. Okay, okay. A good thousand a years, A good thousand though. years. Good you thousand know, that's, years. that's the fun thing about studying South Asia. You can say, <laughs> ah, this person, this text was probably from somewhere between 300 BCE and 200 CE. Well, 500 years. Right. We wanted to talk to you especially today about your recent course on Buddhism and the body. So you recently designed and taught an upper level undergraduate course on Buddhism and the body at the University of Toronto. And in your syllabus, you described this as a course that was considering Buddhist ideas on the body, particularly gendered bodies. And then you were asking how these were constructed and disciplined. (laughs) So can you explain a bit more for our listeners what this course concept was? Um, yeah, so actually this is the second time that I've taught this course, but the first time I've talked about taught it purely in regards to Buddhism. The first iteration of the course was thinking through early Indic texts, um, both Buddhist and Brahminical. So things like the Vedas, the Upanishads, as well as the uh, Pali Canon. This was the, the, the remit of the first course. But then that course was so interesting to me that um, I decided to focus largely on the early Buddhist tradition Mm -hmm. and why I chose to think through the body um, was that it really gave an opportunity to think through things like that are very salient, I think, to the study of social history and also very salient to where we are in the modern world to think through things like gender, Mm -hmm. sexuality, material, and religious practice. And I think all of these things coalesce around ideas and um, ideas about the body, technologies involving the body and discourses surrounding what the body does in the social world. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I was going with this. So I also wanted it to be an opportunity for students to talk about the way in which these very same themes through which we can interrogate early Buddhist texts, we can also use to talk about our own contemporary society. So it sort of sounds like you were interested in questions that are already interesting to your students, but then looking for those questions in finding answers for them, maybe with early Buddhist texts. Yeah. And actually I found my students got very, very excited to, to read through and think through these things. That's great. So how did you locate bodies for students? Because when you're dealing with like early Indian materials or early Indian texts for the most part, how did you find the category of bodies for them? Were there specific terms that you were looking for um, or were there specific texts that you already had um, in mind when you brought this topic to students? Well, um, if I can answer that question by means of a kind of larger contextualization in, in terms of the history of Buddhism and especially how Buddhism is taught, Buddhism is largely seen as a kind of mental and spiritual tradition. So we talk about things like mindfulness and then, you know, so early Buddhism tends to be taught in terms of mental exercises, if you will. I mean, we can, we can talk Mm -hmm. about this 
what I mean by this more later on. And then, of course, as you go through time, you end up, you know, going through Mahayana and then you end up with Tantric Buddhism in there. That's when you get all the weird ritual. That's when you get all the, you know, idea of sexuality, sex, the body. These things become much more salient and talked about when we get to Tantric Buddhism. However, when you actually read early Buddhist texts, you're struck at how actually embodied the discussions in the Pali Canon actually is. So what I was trying, actually, it wasn't very hard to recover it. What I really did was just look through certain of the very famous scriptures, uh, certain famous texts, and just try to put the question, let's just imagine these texts as coming from embodied people, people in bodies. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it made so much sense to talk about it in such a way. And of course, then there are other texts that are incredibly outside of the, you know, the, the Buddha Vachana or the, the words of the Buddha. Outside of, outside of that, there are so many texts like the uh, Tera and Terigata that talk about the personal experiences of early monks and nuns that also really locate this in their own life story, in their own embodied imagination of religion, of themselves, you know, of their place in the world. So really, I mean, the uh, texts themselves... It wasn't hard to find, actually. It wasn't hard to find. There were a lot of bodies in those texts. <laughs> a lot of bodies in those texts. and you know, When you went looking for them. And also just how important it was in the texts themselves. And I'll give you one example. Like, they spend so much time in these Pali texts talking about what the Buddha's body was like and how, he, how he, this was a sign of his extraordinary status. Mm -hmm. So there's one, there's one famous story where, you know, uh, some Brahmins come and see the Buddha teaching and they're like, oh, you know, that sounds really good. Sorry, I'm paraphrasing here. But mm -hmm. Is this a Theragata? No, no, this is, this is in, uh, oh man, I should get, the, I can get the reference. Okay. <laughs> I should, yeah, 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 but it's a description of the Buddha. Uh, yeah, so it's a, well, it's a description of the Buddha preaching and then yeah. these, um, these, uh, uh, um, these Brahmins say, you know, this was really, this was really great. This was really interesting. However, how, you know, we're not really sure you're really a great person. And then of course the Buddha sticks out his tongue, touches both ears, touches both ears with it, and then covers his forehead. And then they say, oh, okay, well, obviously we'll become the Buddha's followers. So at this point, you say that was odd in a certain way because we're taught that the Buddha, or we kind of imagine that the Buddha teaches through logical persuasion and that the Buddha teaches some sort of mental way of being in the world. Whereas for these Brahmins, what actually was the thing that's tipped the scale for them is the fact that the Buddha had a long and broad tongue, which is of course one of the marks of the great man in something like the Lakana Sutta or something like that. Uh, the Lakana Sutta is of course a text that tells the, the marks of a great, of the Buddha, of a great uh, mm. a man. And then, you know, and these things are, the marks of the Buddha are tied to the marks of the emperor. So there's this certain sort of discourse about the masculine body and the body of a powerful man that is really deeply ingrained in these early texts. Yeah, you described something called the hypermasculine body that you found throughout examples in the Pali canon. So what what did you mean by that? What was hypermasculine in the in the examples you found in the early Pali canon? The idea of the hypermasculine body, I think again, it's it's something that's very much there that the Buddha has to be seen as manly. And one of the um, you know, uh, um, John Strong or sorry, John Powers book, um, Bull of a Man really tries to lay out the how the idea of masculinity is absolutely essential to the construction of the Buddha and and uh, 
the way in which he acts in the world. And I think drawing upon drawing upon Powers' work is a really good way to kind of think through this. So if, if you look at the way in the, which the Buddha is described in the Pali Canon, they do things like the Lakana Sutta where they talk about the actual physical marks, you know, what his arms look like. Uh, you know, what his chest looks like, what his back looks like. His back is like a crystal slab or something like that. It's, it's completely smooth. There's no lines on it. You know, there is, they're very specific about this masculine gendered body and it is always masculine gendered. So again, there's this, there's, there's this idea of the Buddha having a sheathed penis and they always talk about, you know, he has a sheathed penis in a certain way. And again, this, this also comes up in many times in Buddha or, or one particular instance in the Buddha's teaching where the, um, a monk gets obsessed with the Buddha's body and, and just demands or just follows the Buddha in order to see the Buddha's body until finally the Buddha says, okay, you're getting a bit obsessed here. I'll show you myself in all my naked glory. And then his, then this monk's desires were quenched and he, uh, he, he went away happy, but there's a certain idea of the actual embodied form of the Buddha as this masculine, um, as this masculine character. Now, this is also tied to certain sorts of, you might say, heterosexual uh, um, descriptions of the Buddha. So that, of course, he's he he's masculine enough to get married, to have you know all of these women in his harem, and to father a son. So he's also this seems very important to the um, to the whole story of uh, the Buddha as well. So. The way in which the Buddha is described, both in his form and in his um, role in society, both his physical body as well as his action as this kind of kingly character, this masculine character, this head of a household character that leads this, that leaves it all for this path, but still retains these qualities, still retains these masculine qualities as the leader of this new sort of social formation. I think is very interesting that in order to lead the social formation, he must also carry forward all these masculine traits. Mm. And that's what I mean by hyper-masculine. Mm-hmm. What were other kind of foci then that you could locate? There was the hyper-masculine body. You also looked at women, right? You looked mm-hmm. at the the uh, male and female gender binary. So my first question is, um, what was your example? What was a What was a good example for students to understand the gendered female body mm. in the Pali Canon. Um, and then I wanted to also ask about whether you had, whether the texts kept you in that binary or whether you were, because many of our students now are aware of yeah. a continuity in terms of gender or many, many options beyond two. Well, yes, that's, uh, those are both very good questions. And first of all, I want to say that I wanted to read these texts um, and, and have the students read these texts not as conforming to our own ideas of masculinity or, or femininity or gender roles or, you know, these, these sorts of binaries, which are so incredibly pervasive in the way in which we see and act in the world. Gender is important. Sexuality is important in these texts. However, these things are also very different. For instance, the, 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 the whole thing about the Buddha's body, the masculine body of the Buddha is very different than what we might see as a hyper-masculine body in our um, now, sure. Our day-to-day life. I yeah. mean, this is. I mean, this is another question that we can talk about a little bit more. So, I also wanted to see the way in which the text themselves drew those lines, and the way in which the tradition itself drew those lines. So, right. um, 
And of course, then there's something pedagogically effective with showing students that masculine look yeah. could look and was described really differently in the yes. fifth century. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And also masculine acts being a man in the world is of course socially conditioned. And this is, this is why we can also use the Buddhist text as theory to think about our own positionality that we don't just get to interrogate Buddhist texts through our own tools, but we can also see what sorts of uh, ideas the Buddhist texts themselves might offer up. But um, to return to your text about women, I think this is mm. really important because I mean, um, uh, Charles Halsey has recently retranslated the, the Terigata beautifully, I, I might add. And the Terigata the, is? Oh, sorry. Yes. The Terigata are the, I, I think it's translated as the Songs of the First Buddhist Women, something like that. Uh, so it's the Terigata, the songs, the Gata of the Teris, so these uh, female monks. Uh, so female nuns, elders, nuns, nuns or female monks. Okay. Um, female monks, actually, yeah, sorry. <laughs> or nuns. nuns. <laughs> yeah, nuns, yeah, we'll call it that. Um, and uh, this is actually... This is absolutely an extraordinary document in which we hear something of a female voice navigating Buddhism and navigating becoming a follower of the Buddha and the way in which their life stories become intertwined within this religious movement. So it's those texts are, are great ways to see the way in which um, uh, women interacted with this tradition that I just laid out as being founded and being kind of embedded in certain ideas of masculinity. So uh, those texts were, were really important. Sorry, if I can go back a little bit to the, the history of the study of Buddhism in the West, one of the most fascinating things about Pali Buddhism is many of the first scholars of Pali Buddhism were women from the West. Uh, many of the first translators and people who published on this text were women. And that I think is something that we should really um, think through and actually. Who, who I'm curious, who are the women who were important early translators for like the Like Ivy Horner. Okay. Um, I forget her first name, Reese Davids. Uh, the husband and wife yeah. team. Ivy Horner. Ivy Horner, of yeah. course, translated yeah. the uh, uh, Vinaya Pirtika, um But, and these women, so are you suggesting that sort of their positionality as women influenced what they saw in the translation? I'm the actually, I'm actually saying something similar because there's, there's, there was a kind of, when these texts were first being brought out to a Western audience, we're talking like the, late 19th, late century. 19th, early 20th century. Um, these texts were in many ways sold as egalitarian texts, much more egalitarian than the Brahminical or Hindu religion or these other sorts of ideas that within the texts themselves, they have a more egalitarian, democratic, whatever sort of positionality. And in doing so, you know, they, these scholars have been critiqued of you know, falling into this Protestantism trap of this, you know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like true Buddhism is devoid of ritual. It's, it's very egalitarian. Nobody cares about bodies because it's all about this mental sort of, you know. Okay. This yeah, is and to the, some extent then kind of constructing <coughs> this myth of, of Buddhism being a religion of, the mind and the philosophy of the, of the, and purity and, that is separate. And the text. Yeah, and, and just, it's just textual religion. People sit and read it, you know, then you think about it and that's what you yeah. do. And it's a cognitive relationship. Yeah. yeah. So, but I'm, so in many ways though, the, these women were, were advocating for something rather radical in their own scholarship, which was actually to say like, you know, women do have a place in, in, in religion. And again, this is this is true for early Buddhism. We do have these amazing texts like the Terigata that have these female voices. However, the, 
the texts themselves are much more ambiguous and ambivalent towards the role of females within the tradition itself. And to give one example, of course, there's the very famous example, Ananda, Buddha's main disciple, is always you know, shown to be this great defender of women and trying to include more uh, women within the Sangha. And the Buddha says, okay, yeah, fine, Ananda will let in women, but now Buddhism is only going to last half as long as it would have because of this. And of course, then we have all these rules that the highest nun is under the lowest monk. And, you know, so there's mm-hmm. ways in which women were included and given a voice in very interesting ways. However, the, the tradition, the, the textual tradition itself also shows strong um, biases against women having real power. Now, again, I'm not saying this is how it was, but I'm saying the texts themselves show this complex negotiation. How do you guide your students into reading these texts? Um, And if you're trying to locate like a kind of broader historiography of those texts, how how can they hold that complicated, like here's the reception history as well as the texts together? And then, yeah, those are complicated projects that you're trying to (laughs) share with students, right? Ones that... Some of us are going to spend lifetimes trying to <laughs> trying to disentangle both the what we've received from what we know and how we know it. So, what's a way of that you can help students sort of put these texts into into the context? That's a that's a very good question, and it's one that I struggle with as I teach constantly. And also, I mean, I learn every time every time I read these texts again, and I learn every time I teach them because actually the students are teaching me as well. But the things that I think are really useful are to read the primary cell text themselves slowly, carefully, and with a kind of open mind towards questions. What doesn't make sense? How can we understand what's going on here? And to talk about them as a group together. Mm-hmm. And then I like to pair this sort of close reading with some modern scholars work to provide some sort of guidance that we can bounce our ideas off of. So for instance, I mentioned um, John Powers' book, uh, Bull of a Man, and I signed the beginning chapters of that book because, I, you know, I found it was it was accessible to students. It also kind of provided a social background, a narrative, but then it also allowed the students to, yeah, this background to explore it further, to question further, to understand um, more. So again, I think it's important to pair these texts with other sorts with interpretive text. So we can see what other scholars are doing and then we can under, try to understand what lineages these scholars are coming out of so sure. that, so that and do to you see different perspectives. Do you show them different translations of the same type of text? Do, do you ever try that? Because I mean, of course, mm. translation itself is, I mean, I've, yeah. as you've highlighted, so contextual, right? Like we're all, yeah. we're always choosing the terms that fit our present needs or interests in some sense. So have you, has that been a tool you've used? You no, know, I haven't. And that's probably, that might be a good thing to to look at. But I, you know, I tend to use just a single translation because, I mean, the words can be very important. And sometimes, you know, I'll go back to the primary text and try to flag a certain number of uh, words or, or terms that are important. But I really think that usually in translation, the, the ideas that come out often provide that impetus that, that students can understand what's at stake without getting caught in the details. And I can't believe I'm saying that as a philologist, but I actually think these larger questions become very important about how these texts are framed, what is going on in these texts, how the community of monks is acting, how 
the Buddha adjudicates cases, these sorts of ideas. And then the historiographical question. You've talked already quite mm. a bit about, you know, this complicated history of our reception mm. yeah. of Buddhism that still very much colors what yeah. students come to our classes assuming to be true yeah. about the tradition. Do you foreground the the reception history of 19th century translations and, and their context versus mm. uh, more modern translations in their context? You know, usually what I try to uh, do in this course in terms of, I'm, I'm not trying to make this a historiography class. It's an undergraduate class. It, at a graduate level, I think that that would be a very important question to address. And however, what I try to do, and I mean, I'll introduce this in my opening remarks to whatever we're reading, but what I'm trying to look at is specific snapshots within Buddhist um, social history. So, you know, um, talking about something like nuns, for instance, mm -hmm. and looking at a few texts as being indicative of certain questions that we might approach this situation with. So, for instance, in this idea of, when we talk about nuns, for instance, we can read something like, the, the um, Vinaya Pitaka, the, the part that gives rules for nuns, which gives one particular sort of, I'll just use the word imagination for how women should act in a Buddhist context. And then I'll try to pair that with the Terigata, which has another very different sort of positionality about how nuns act mm -hmm. within a Buddhist monastic, an early Buddhist monastic context. And in that we can see that there's different sorts of issues at play and there's not just simply one way of being a nun and that's the Vinaya Pitika because that's the rules. You know, that we can also think about different sorts of subjectivities to get a more complex notion of what nuns are like because I, I often think that, you know, when we have ancient texts, we set, tend to take the rule books as this is how things were and then the other stuff is kind of literary imaginations. Whereas I want to see both as deeply historically contingent. And I think by reading things like this next to each other, you can begin to see this sort of complexity without trying to make an argument about Western genealogies of study, you know, mm -hmm. that these things become apparent by taking the texts themselves seriously. And, and for the students, I think these texts themselves tell the story in a much more vivid way than, you know, reading a lot of stuff about the history of Buddhist studies in the West. You've talked somewhat about um, helping your students see these as theories of the body. Mm. Is it difficult for your students at an undergraduate level to understand early Sanskrit texts and translation as a locus of theory? Well, I think by reading these texts carefully, you begin to see this because, I mean, what I mean by theory is different sorts of um, productive ideological imaginations mm -hmm. through which problems are discussed. What I mean by theory is like an imaginary relationship to a real problem so that women within the Buddhist Sangha is a real life issue within the Sangha. How are these things to be included? Then these texts provide what we might say the ideologies for this inclusion, this imaginary or yeah, this imaginary relationship to this real problem. So like, how do we actually understand that? So we get some things that say, you know, oh, we need all these extra rules for nuns. You know, we need, uh, you know, we need to make sure there's a definite hierarchy. That's one sort of uh, theoretical, if you will, ideological approach to the way in which women acted within Buddhism, but it is not the only way. When we see this Thera, these, these Terigatha texts, we see 
within the female voice, other ways of being included within this other relationships uh, that also provide um, ways in which to see gender relationships within the early Buddhist community. And I think reading those side by side, this is what I mean by theory that we can see these, these, these relationships and try to draw these out Mm -hmm. to understand these different sorts of positionalities that again can help us understand the the ways in which gender relationships work within our own contemporary society. These things that are largely invisible to us because, you know, we swim in these things. It may seem very strange within these ancient Buddhist texts. However, once you begin to pull that apart, you can get a sense of our own foreignness. I'm going to switch gears a bit and ask about some sort of the technology of how you teach about this in the classroom. We get together usually for two hours a week, right? And we sit in a room slash do whatever we want in a room. And so you're, and I think your courses are largely discussion based in those two hours, right? So you've got your students preparing for this class by Mm -hmm. doing readings Mm -hmm. and then they come and discuss topics. But I saw on your syllabus that you also have them doing pair presentations. So what were those about? What kinds of uh, topics did you give students to present on? Usually what I would have the students do is, um, so usually I would have primary readings and secondary readings. And usually what I would make the students do is present on the primary readings and then begin leading the conversation. Mm. So that we would all talk through the secondary readings after they had done that. But I wanted them to try to see how they, what questions would, they would see as pertinent within the primary readings and also having their peers lead this conversation can be sometimes difficult, but I think it really adds to the conversation to see what the students are actually finding Mm -hmm. interesting within these primary texts. Mm -hmm. And again, of course the secondary material kind of frames the question, but, Mm -hmm. but I would have them introduce it and lead the, lead the discussion. Did any of them ever surprise you greatly and have a question, draw out a question that you hadn't seen before or have a totally different focus than what you would have brought to (laughs) constantly, constantly trying to think of a precise example. One is not really springing to mind right now, but I I can say the thing, the the text that were probably the most fun and this may be shocking to people, but is the Vinaya Pitaka. Like people got into going through the Vinaya Pitaka and especially looking at these, these rules of conduct, rules of conduct and just Mm -hmm. trying to understand what is the organization here? Why are all there all these rules? These rules are horrifying. Why are some things offenses and other things not offenses? To try to figure out the logic here, that was, I think that was the part for me that was the most interesting just because I was like, oh, you know, students are going to find this really boring. No, and they, they loved, loved it. it. <laughs> they loved it and they really went through and found and found incongruities that, found incongruities yeah, that were, yeah. that were, that the discussion, when we discussed them, I think brought a lot out because basically what happens in the Vinaya Pitaka for those, uh, for those who don't uh, know this text is there'll be a story, mm. a lot, usually one long story um, that will begin a section and then it'll be adjudicated by the Buddha as an offense or not. Mm. And then there'll be smaller sub stories that just go on and on and on that kind of have the same general theme. Mm-hmm. And then the Buddha at the end of all of them says, you're either kicked out, you're censured, or it's fine. Mm-hmm. So you, you'll you see this kind of weird pattern. Some things are fine and some things are terrible offenses, but it's very, you know, to try to figure out the logic behind this. What was one um, of the stories and the kind of incongruities that the students found strange or surprising? Or like, is, is there one story about, so I assume these are students, these are stories of 
people having done things yes, that were yeah. wrong, right? Yeah, and possibly. And, and then the Buddha is going to decide whether. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, <laughs> I guess he doesn't kill people, but well, the, well, we, we were we weren't reading the the. So you know, there are there are four there are four uh, kind of. I hesitate to use the word sin, but we'll say there are four deeds that will get you, you know, kicked out of the Sangha. And these are sex, killing someone, theft, and claiming to have spiritual attainments that you don't actually have. Those are the, those are the four. And by far the longest is sex. Um, the so, one about the longest, meaning the one about which there is the most content yeah, written? The, yeah, the, 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 the most content is the part mm. on sex. Because I guess like mm -hmm. killing people's... <laughs> a lot easier to understand whether it's bad or good or something like mm. that. But, but within this story, there'll just be all of these stories and there'll be just so, um, uh, I don't want to be pejorative, but they're, they're, they're sometimes rather shocking. These stories that the Buddha adjudicates about, um, about sexual misconduct and seeing which ones are actually, reasons for uh, being expelled and which ones aren't, you know, it's very, uh, it's very fascinating. And these so, are mostly stories of monks, right? Who've been drawn into. Mostly stories of monks. Absolutely. So, you know. Sexual relationship against their will. Or, well, sometimes it's against their will. Sometimes it's very much mm -hmm. according to their will, but then you see, oh, but you know, to give an example, it'd be like, well, what if it's a dead body? What if it's not a living person? Is mm -hmm. that, is that an offense? What if it's a, you know, what if it's just a pile of bones? Does that count? You know, these are all stories that are within the Vinaya Pitaka. And uh, uh, I, for those of you who haven't read it, I highly recommend you go out and read it. It might be somewhat surprising if you read what's in the Vinaya Pitaka. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so beyond your presentations, you also had them write two papers, yes. two short mm -hmm. Ish yeah. papers. Yeah. I mean, six to eight page papers, yeah. which yeah. are not short actually for undergraduate students. That's pretty long. But yeah. um, did you assign topics for those or did you help students find their own mm. topics? Well, I assigned a broad theme and then I also said that they had to use the prime. So I don't want them, I didn't want them go, to go out and do their own research, mm -hmm. but I wanted to, them to find a theme that they were interested in. So basically I said, you must use the primary sources that are in the syllabus and you have to use for the for the first paper two and for this last one four, you must use the primary sources to build your argument mm -hmm. and you can, and you must frame them in terms of the secondary sources that we looked at, but you have to make your own argument within the text. So, I mean, I gave them a very broad, um, you know, a broad question to investigate, but I, because I wanted there to be a balance between um, having having them use the material from the course creatively and productively and also do something that they found interesting. Mm -hmm. Cause I didn't want them to just go off to the library. Cause who knows, you know, what would come out of that. I actually wanted this to be very focused on, on, on the sources. And actually some of the papers were just, it's, it's really interesting to see what students come up with, what um, ideas they find productive to think through. And you also asked students to attend non-class events, yes. right? Run things that are run by, um, the Center for South Asian Civilizations at mm -hmm. U of T, Mississauga, yeah. and to write sort of critical reflections about yeah. them. So what kinds of events were these this term in particular? And was this effective? Like why or why not? Because I'm sure in some sense they had to do a bit of extra mm. work to connect yeah. a contemporary event to the types of texts you were studying. Yeah. So how did that go? Well, first of all, I should say that uh, my undergraduate teaching happens at University of Toronto, Mississauga, uh, which is... Uh, 
which is really a center for the study of South Asia, especially at the undergraduate level. So there's many events that are there. So I wanted to make sure that the students both knew about this and could also be integrated within this, these, I find, absolutely wonderful events that are going on. By events, what kinds of things? Lectures? Yeah, so they'd be, you know, mainly things like lectures, uh, uh, different speakers who came in uh, and and talked. So for instance, we had... um, two scholars of Pali Buddhism from Pune who were there leading a reading group in Sanskrit, Pali, and Tibetan, um, uh, Lata and Mahesh Deokar. So then they gave a talk so the students could go to that to see two scholars from India who actually work on Pali and Sanskrit to see the way in which they approach the text. But then again, I didn't want it to be just Buddhist texts or or just Buddhist events or just events that were uh, tied to um, this, uh, to, to this class. Um, for instance, there was a, a wonderful lecture that happened by, uh, Nikki Guninder Singh, who talks about feminism and Sikhism. And actually, you know, you might think that, oh, contemporary feminism and Sikh studies and early Buddhism, they don't have anything to talk about, but actually the students themselves who went to the events saw that there was very much that could speak across these. And actually they had developed a vocabulary to, to talk about and to engage with these sorts of, with, uh, with these other sorts of events. So I wanted these, cor- I, I really want these courses to be integrated into larger discussions about South Asia and about the themes of the course, about the gender of the body, et cetera. Did your understanding of the, of the topic itself change in the course of this time of teaching or how did it evolve if it, if we can't, point to immediate change? Well, absolutely. So, um, as I had mentioned, I'm, I'm a Sanskritist and I had also done a lot of, um, work in Buddhist texts when I was at, when I was in graduate school. However, I concentrated mainly on the later phase, uh, Sanskrit Buddhism, Mahayana and Tantric Buddhism was the, the types of Buddhism that I was most familiar with. And actually learning Teaching this course, I also taught it as a way for me to learn more about early Buddhism and to also really carefully read these Pali texts, which are seen as so foundational to Buddhism. But I find oftentimes they're seen as rather guidebooks for meditative practice or, or, or whatever, which, again, they have a lot of that material, but they have so much more to think through um, to think through um, different topics. So, I mean, I learned so much. And to read these texts carefully and to look through these texts for for these interesting moments and events as ways to understand the social world out of which uh, early Buddhism developed for me was yeah, absolutely fascinating. And I, I felt like a student most of the time too. So. <laughs> Hopefully we always are, right? <laughs> as one of my final questions, I wanted to ask you uh, for a short-ish version of how you got to be here. <laughs> so um, like describing for us your formation, where you came from, where you started, where you were born, and how you became this person who teaches about early Indian texts in this way. Well, I was born in Toledo, Ohio. Oftentimes the events that changed the, well, at least in my case, the events that changed the course of my life are, are very small, but somehow very powerful. So um, I went to undergrad at the University of Tennessee. And I remember my very first, I think it was my, yeah, my very first semester at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I took a class just because it fit my schedule and it sounded interesting. And it was called Religious Aspects of Modern Indian Literature. And it was taught by a professor named James L. Fitzgerald. 
And I remember being absolutely fascinated. We read Kim, we read Passage to India, we read God of Small Things, we read The Guide, uh, we read yeah, Samskara. I remember all of the books that we read in that mm-hmm. course and I just found it absolutely fascinating. And I, after the course, I went up to speak to Professor Fitzgerald and I said, you know, I'm very interested in this. Uh, do you teach more classes? He says, well, actually, I, I, you know, I do ancient India. I'm a Sanskritist, uh, you know. And of course, he is a leading expert, if not the leading expert on the Mahabharata. So then we did it. You know, I think I started my probably my second semester doing independent reading in the Mahabharata uh, in translation. And then gradually I started to take Sanskrit. And from there on out, I was absolutely hooked. So it was a chance encounter in an undergraduate class. And actually, it was very nice because um, just a few weeks ago, I was lucky enough to go to the Honda lecture in uh, Amsterdam, which is a large lecture on on a topic on South Asia, given by a, a distinguished scholar in James Fitzgerald. My first Sanskrit professor was there giving this wonderful lecture on the Mahabharata, and it was great. It was I don't know. I found it a very did he know you've kept in touch? Like, oh yeah, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. of course, of course. We kept in touch, yeah. and um, I don't know. It was just it was very nice because you know he was this person who really put me on this path. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, after after University of Tennessee, I went to UC Berkeley, where my advisor was uh, Robert Goldman, who's who is a great scholar of the Ramayana, who's translating the Ramayana, and I continued my Sanskrit studies with him, and he was absolutely formative and really taught me Sanskrit. But at Berkeley, I was lucky enough to be surrounded by great Buddhist study scholars. And in particular, Alexander von Rosbott, who works on South Asian Buddhism, South Asian Nepalese Buddhism. So I read a lot with him as well. So I was very much shaped by my education and by these wonderful uh, scholars that I was able to meet. And then, you know, from there, my first teaching job was at University of Pennsylvania, where I was a Sanskrit lecturer. And there, the department was wonderful in being uh, open to having me as part of their intellectual community. So I learned so much, especially from uh, Dauda Lee, who is a great social historian of, uh, of uh, early South Asia. So, you know, I've, mm-hmm. I've tried to continue to learn at all of these places. Mm-hmm. So I'm lucky enough to continue my learning here and, and getting to teach a little bit as well. So. Yeah, yeah. And who knows, one of these undergraduate courses, then you might find the next person who wants to continue studying Sanskrit and learning. I have no doubt about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the goal, right? Yeah. Just because it's so beautiful and pleasurable to hear, is there any verse that, um, since you're such a skilled Sanskritist, (laughs) I've heard you do Sanskrit before. So um, uh, is there any verse that, you know, you could share with us? uh, Maybe one that you came across in in your class of this term that we've been discussing about Buddhism and the body? Oh yes, yeah. so um, I put this on my syllabus as, as, as my kind of way into this um, into this topic, uh, and uh, if you, thank you for indulging me. This is one of my favorite verses of all time. Uh, it is from the Kumara Sambhava. It's uh, from chapter five, around thirty or something like that. It goes apikriyatham sulabham samit kusham jalaniya pisnana vidikshamanite apisvashaktiyat pasi pravartase shariramadyam kaludharma sadhanam. It's a beautiful verse, which basically means. Well, let me tell you the context yeah. first. Yeah, um, yeah. So who's meeting who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, um, so uh, Parvati. The, the goddess Parvati, the daughter of the mountain, has been practicing asceticism in order to win a husband, win Shiva as her husband. And now Shiva shows up in the guise 
of a Brahmin ascetic and, and comes to see or approaches Parvati in her ascetic grove. And Parvati says to him this verse, uh, is firewood and kindling easy to obtain for your rites? Is there water too that is sufficient for your rites of bathing? Are you practicing tapas to the best of your ability? And then here's the kicker. Here's the line that I really like. He says, The body indeed is the foremost, is the adhyam is the foremost, is the first instrument of dharma. So what I really mm-hmm. liked about this is to think through the way in which one's body is the way in which dharma is promulgated and worked through in the world. So mm-hmm. it's a mm-hmm. wonderful and beautiful verse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you for sharing yeah. it. with Luther. You can find more information about Luther's research and publications on his profile page at the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. We'll post a link in the show notes. Show notes and transcripts are available on our website at teachingbuddhism.net. If you've enjoyed this, we'd love to hear from you. Please let us know over social media or email. And we remind you to subscribe to this podcast through Apple or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. A very special thanks to Dr. Betsy Moss for recording, editing, and producing this podcast. This podcast is made in the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening and be well. <laughs>